Welcome to the Modern Cloister, where we cultivate deeper thinkers and worshipers through conversations about the Christian life, in the same spirit as the conversations that took place during the Reformation at the Black Cloister, the former monastery and home of Martin Luther and his wife, Katharina von Bora. If you like the types of conversations we've been having, we encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe. Connect with us on social media at Carissa Turner and the J. Kevin Turner, and send us your thoughts, questions, experiences, and suggestions for future topics to moderncloister at gmail.com. I'm Carissa, and today we're going to be doing something a little bit different. I had the absolute delight of hosting the co-authors of a new book for a conversation in the Modern Cloister. The book is called Jesus and Gender, Living as Brothers and Sisters in Christ, and it's a powerful re-examination of gender in relation to Christ that explores faulty understandings of women and men and re-centers them around the person of Jesus Christ. We're excited to share our discussion with you momentarily, but before we do, here's a little bit about both of the authors. Elise Fitzpatrick is a nationally sought-after speaker and author. She holds a certificate in biblical counseling and has an MA in biblical counseling from Trinity Theological Seminary. She's authored 23 books and lives in California with her husband, Phil. Eric Shoemaker is a pastor, songwriter, and author. He earned an MDiv in biblical and theological studies from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Eric and his wife, Jenny, have five children and live in Iowa. It was really great having both Elise and Eric on the show with us, and we hope you enjoy our conversation. All right, Elise and Eric, welcome to the show, and thank you guys so much for being here. It's an absolute delight to host you here in the Modern Cloister. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. All right, so I have to share as we get started that I know this conversation is all about your second book together, um, but I have to share that I did discover you when I came across your first book, Worthy, and I was actually, I discovered it because I had been asked to speak on a panel about women in the church. And of course I wanted to do well by that topic. And even though I had had discussions about that, you know, one-on-one and had been studying it on my own, I, it was the first time I was going to speak about it publicly. And so I looked for some, some resources to help refine my thinking and I stumbled across worthy and I really appreciated your approach to it. So of course, when this second book came out for the two of you together, I was so excited to get my hands on it and jumped at the chance to be able to sit down with you and actually talk with you about this book. And so it's just such an honor to have you both here. And I'm really excited for the time today. Thank so, you. Should we just jump in? That sounds sure. good. All right. So first and foremost, I would love to know. So I mentioned this in our introduction, but the title of the book is Jesus and Gender, Living as Brothers, Sisters and Brothers in Christ. And I'd love to know to kick us off. Tell us a little bit about why you wrote the book. And why now? Why is this book important in this particular moment in time? Um, Thanks, Krista. Thanks also for the opportunity to be with you. Um, We wanted to write a book that was going to talk about um, gender, men and women, and how they relate to each other um, in the church as Christians. And we wanted to do that right now because the gender wars are raging (laughs) and it just seems like there, it seems like there's so much heat and not a lot of light, you know? So there are people who are um, raging on both sides of the discussion. And what we wanted to do was come in and reframe the discussion from a, uh, from a perspective that we think is really lacking, which is the perspective of the gospel. So 
you know, it's just so important for us as Christians to seek to uh, reframe our thought uh, around Jesus Christ and what he has already done rather than trying to pick out where we want to, um, the things we want to say, uh, the ways we want to um, push certain ways of thinking forward and instead really look at the gospel. Mm, that's great. Yeah. And I, I, just to echo what Elise said, we, you know, in, in, in Worthy, you know, we talked about the, the, the value and equality and the, the criticalness of women in the storyline of, of redemption. And, you know, we just have this firm conviction that if Jesus Christ is the perfect human being uh, that became like his brothers and sisters in every respect, then uh, we ought to we ought to flesh out what it looks like for us to be remade in his image. Yeah. And that really takes us into a really unique approach that, that I discovered even in like the first chapter or two of the book is that you really approach the entire conversation about gender really grounded in the incarnation. So could you share a little bit briefly about how that really impacted your approach? Yeah. So you know, as Elise said, these wars on gender roles and so forth have been have been especially prevalent for the last several decades. And it seems like all these conversations really center on uh, the ideas of authority and submission and who gets to be the boss and who can do what in the church or in the home or in the world. And and we really th- have come to see that what's been lacking in all of this is the gospel and the starting point of what it means that the eternal son of God took on human nature and lived among us. And, and like I said earlier, you know, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect. And Paul says, you know, that we are predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And so all of us are destined in Christ to look like him. And, and just too often, uh, you know, instead of focusing on Christ, who is the perfect and supreme display of God's glory, we've sort of looked at who among us gets to have the glory, uh, men or women. And that's a conversation Jesus never really liked among his disciples. And, and so it, you know, we, we spend so much time struggling with each other uh, over our own glory and privileges that we actually end up distracting from the gospel of Jesus. We wanted to, um, Again, look at the discussion of what it means to be man and woman, male and female, in the light of Jesus Christ and what he's done, particularly keen off of uh, Paul's description of Jesus Christ and what he's done and his admonition to us in Philippians 2. So Philippians 2, 5 reads, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. So I think the first place we ought to go when we uh, talk about the roles of men and women, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, is to 
seek to do so with the attitude of Jesus Christ. And what was his attitude? That even though he existed in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be exploited. And Mm -hmm. that is so important for us. Instead, he emptied himself and assumed the form of a servant and even became obedient as a slave unto death. So then what does that mean about gender? I think what that means about gender is the first thing we ought to talk about, what we ought to key on, what our attitude needs to be, is how can I empty myself? How can I, uh, maybe I think I have authority. Maybe I think from scripture, I've been given authority either as a wife in a marriage or in a church as far as ordination is concerned. Maybe I believe that. I don't think, though, that that's the place where the discussion needs to go. If, in fact, I believe that, I need to I need to adopt the attitude that Jesus Christ had, which is give it away for the life of the people around me. And in pursuit of the Great Commission, which is that I partner with my brothers and sisters to go out into the world and demonstrate what it means to lay down my life. Mm-hmm. As long as we're fighting about who gets to be boss, we're not doing that other thing. Yeah. And that makes me think in, in the book, I know you use the term voluntary humility mm-hmm. and focused a lot on that. And so that, I think that's a really important thing to call out in, in that, in that aspect, for sure. Um, it's not really a race to who has the most power. It's really a race to who can humble themselves and serve one another. And that, that picture of mutual flourishing that you paint in the book, I think is really powerful as a shared calling that both genders have toward one another. And so I think that's, that's really powerful. And it probably connects a little bit to this next question, um, which is about the term Christic men and women that you guys came up with, which I love, I haven't heard it before. So I'm assuming that you guys have coined this new term, but I'd love, I'd love for you to connect the dots about where we just were and how you guys came up with that, that term, that, that picture of what it looks like to take some of those principles in the life of Christ and apply them to what it looks like as, as sisters and brothers together. Yeah. So, uh, that, that term Christic is not, totally original to us. It's, you know, the word Christic in and of itself means uh, resembling or uh, having to do with Christ. And so it's fashioned, something that's fashioned after Christ or looks like him. And and it's been used from time to time to talk about Christic manhood, uh, but we've never seen anyone talk about Christic womanhood. And I think that, uh, you know, just sort of that colloquial use sort of betrays an attitude that really believes, you know, it's men that are to be like Christ and women, they should probably, you know, they probably need another example. You know, maybe they need to be like Sarah or Mary or, you know, some other woman that we find in the Bible, but that's, that's just wrongheaded. Uh, you know, the author of Hebrews said that uh, Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect. And and that tells us that what he took on, though he was a man and a, a male, what he took on was human nature, uh, not masculine nature 
as opposed to feminine nature. Uh, he took on human nature and he was masculine because he was a man and couldn't be anything else but masculine. And so what we're saying is, is that if you want to know what it looks like to be a mature Christian woman, then you must look at Jesus. And if you want to know what it looks like to be a mature Christian man, then you must look at Jesus. We are all being conformed into the image of Christ, and there's not a male Christ and a female Christ. There's one Christ, and we're all, as believers, filled with his one spirit, and there isn't... Uh, a bushel full of female, you know, feminine fruit and masculine fruit that we're all supposed to produce. There's only the fruit of the spirit. Uh, the love that we're supposed to have, the joy, the peace, the patience, that's the same for men and women. And the commands that we're given throughout uh, the New Testament for what it means to be followers of Jesus are not given to us as masculine commands and feminine commands. There's a few commands that are given specifically to men or to women in different situations. But overall, what it means to be a, a Christian person is the same. And uh, we're all we're all being conformed into into one image. And so that means in our discipleship and in our parenting and in the ways that we relate to one another, we need to be very, very careful that the definitions we're giving of what it means to be a man or a woman or what it means to raise boys or girls or how we relate to each other are not informed and controlled by cultural definitions of masculinity and femininity, but by biblical definitions of what it means to put on Christ and to be found in him. We wanted to, um, we wanted to come up with a word that more closely resembled what we were trying to get at. And that's why we, we chose the word Christic. Um, because there are other words that talk about, um, you know, male and female relationships like complementarianism and uh, egalitarianism. And what we wanted to do, because both of those terms, there are there are good things in both of those terms, but they all primarily function about authority and submission. Who gets to be the boss? And while we may have opinions about that question, we think we're missing the primary question. So we wanted to move away from uh, complementarian, egalitarian terms that uh, really have primarily to do with who gets to do what, and instead say, what does it mean to be male and female in light of the incarnation? where the God, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, gave up his rights as God in order to become one of us. And in doing that, you know, he demonstrated over and over and over again, and particularly in conversations with his disciples, who were always asking who gets to be boss. And we're always hoping that they were going to be the boss. Jesus kept saying, no, you, it's not to be like that among you. 
So what kind of word then could we use that would define what we wanted to get at? And, and plus both of those terms, egalitarianism, complementarianism, tend to carry baggage. Mm-hmm. Uh, implications and applications that go so far beyond scripture. You know, if you're going to be a woman, you need to uh, really love to bake pies. I, I, don't, I don't know where that stuff comes from, certainly not from scripture. But so what we wanted to do was say, all right, we want to talk about uh, how males and females are to view themselves and each other in light of what Jesus Christ has done, which is why we decided to use the word Christic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's fantastic. And in fact, I, I really appreciated the fact that this book did not use either of those two terms, complementarian or egalitarian. I have found, especially in the past couple of years, as I've, as I've dived into this topic more and I've had more and more discussions and I've been reading and it's just, it's blowing up in, in the, the Christian internet, if you would. Um, I'm not even sure what I would classify myself as anymore because there seems to be even subsets within the terms, depending on where you fall on this spectrum. And it is yeah. about like, as soon as you cross a line, you're then like this version of a complementarian or this version of an egalitarian. And I think there is a lot of, there's a lot of value in understanding some of those pieces, but when it becomes the end all be all part of a discussion, it really does it a disservice overall. And I'm, I'm curious if there's a way that you could either one of you speak to how you've seen that play out in your own lives, in your own churches, what you've, how you've seen those terms cause division, unity, just kind of where state of the church in those discussions. Yeah. It, the, the history of those terms is interesting because you know, egalitarian, quote unquote, egalitarian scholars were the first ones to use the term complement in their, in referring to men and women in the Bible and to state that men and women complement one another. So that is not a foreign concept to egalitarianism. And most, you know, female priests that I've talked to uh, that love the gospel and love the Bible uh, have said, you know, men and women compliment one another. We, my husband and I compliment one another. The men and women in our church compliment one another. So it's, you know, when you only give that word to one side and likewise to be egalitarian, to be, to have equality among all the people, the, the complementarians would, would affirm that concept as well. And so, you know, that word could be used. It's important to know that with complementarianism, uh, that, that, that phrase or that that word complementarian was coined by uh, what became the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood as they were drafting the Danvers Statement. And so their current president, Denny Burke, has an article called Mere Complementarianism in which he states, and and I I, I agree with him here, he says, uh, look, this, this term was coined to describe the contents of the Danvers Statement. And so if you don't believe everything in the Danvers Statement, then you're not a complementarian. And so you can hold that only men can be ordained to the office of elder, and that men are the head of their wives, and wives should submit to their husbands, but not believe 
everything else that's in, or you, you could not believe some of what's in the Danvers statement. And so to hold to those two positions does not make you a complementarian. There are many more beliefs that have to go with that. But what's happened is, and likewise with egalitarians, um, there are, there's a, there's a, a lot of beliefs that can go on with that. And that term isn't quite as well defined on what it means to be an egalitarian because it's, it's been more commonly used, but you know, it's what they've become is sort of stereotypes and pictures. And so like you mentioned, there's been these subsets, there are soft complementarians and hard complementarians. Um, well, I want to say, no, there are Danvers complementarians. They, they believe that, but the way that's been used is, um, Danvers and the council on biblical manhood and womanhood and the writings that come out of them and the authors that were central to crafting that camp of theology, they extend a lot of these principles further out beyond the home and the church or the office of pastor into the world. And so you can read in recovering biblical manhood and womanhood about how a woman must give directions to a man trying to find the freeway in a way that is, you know, protects his masculinity and, and all this stuff comes into it. And you can read about how, you know, maybe women shouldn't be police officers because they'll have to give directions to men. And so when, when someone says, um, well, you know, I, I think a woman could be president of the United States. And, and John Piper has said it's sinful to vote for a woman to be vice president. Mm -hmm. If someone says, no, I think a woman could be president, but only men can be elders and husbands should be the head of the home, then the, you'll be called a soft complementarian. And now the language has been, well, soft complementarians are actually just egalitarians pretending to be complementarians and egalitarians always have to end up denying the inspiration of scripture. And so you have this big view that complementarianism is that affects every aspect of life in the world beyond qualified people can hold an office in the church, mm -hmm. but there is this, there's this line of association that as soon as you uh, disagree with how this plays out at the fullest extent in the world, then you're soft, then you're egalitarian, then you're liberal, then you've denied the faith. Mm -hmm. And so you just, you just need to find a way to characterize your quote unquote enemy or the person who disagrees with you theologically. And then, and the same thing happens the opposite direction, where as soon as someone identifies themselves as a complementarian, it can be, oh, well, they're a misogynist and they say they value women, but they don't give them, you know, equal say and equal input and all these things. And they're immediately suspect. And those labels really prevent conversation. They create a lot of division and you end up, I think, suspecting and condemning genuine brothers and sisters in Christ who love Jesus, love the gospel, love the Bible, uh, because we've elevated what I would call a secondary issue in the church, something like who the candidate of baptism is and, and what mode of baptism we use. We've elevated that 
to first order orthodoxy that if you don't agree with us then you've then you're anathema and that is not honoring to christ and it's not helpful to his church and it's not good for the world yeah i um you know just just in talking for just another moment about some of the problems we see in in a in a strong or hard complementarian uh perspective is that they say that uh, the church is to have a masculine feel. Well, first of all, I don't even know what that means. Um, maybe it means that when you walk into church, all you see is guys or there aren't any flowers or something. I don't even know what that means. But where in the Bible does it say that the church is to have a masculine feel? See, it's just not there, and particularly not in the New Testament. And, you know, a lot of what we hear from uh, what people that we would call would be hard, that would be hard complementarians would be people who are concerned about what they call the feminization of the church. Mm -hmm. So, again, where does the Bible talk about that? Mm -hmm. um you know the reality is if you look at the new testament record uh the people jesus surrounded himself with were uh the 12 disciples of course and then a group of women who itinerated with him i mean the mere fact that jesus allowed women to itinerate with him as a rabbi is shocking and also that these women are said to be supporting him and his mission out of their own means. And actually, they're the only people in the New Testament who uh, are recorded as supporting him out of their means. So women are doing that. And then you move to Paul. And who are the people that Paul is partnering with? Well, yes, of course, there are men that Paul is partnering with, but he's also partnering over and over again with women. Mm -hmm. You know, Paul wasn't worried about the feminization of the church when he sent Phoebe to Rome with his letter to the Romans. And mm -hmm. I, there's discussion about this, but probably... Phoebe read the letter aloud. Now, you can take that wherever you want to take it. But Paul wasn't concerned about the fact that there was a woman who was going to read what is probably the most beautiful explanation of the Christian faith to the church at Rome. He wasn't worried about the feminization of the church at Rome. Mm -hmm. In addition, the first um, convert to Christianity in Europe was a woman, Lydia. So you've got Paul, and he's praying that God would uh, expand his ministry, and God shows him a vision of a Macedonian man who says, come over and help us. So Paul goes to Philippi, and I'm sure in his mind he's thinking, although I don't know this, but I'm sure he's thinking, there's some man I'm going to meet here, and he's going to be the connection that we have with the gospel. But who does he meet? A, a, a group of women <laughs> a praying at a riverside. Mm -hmm. And Lydia becomes the first woman that is baptized and converted 
And she hosts the Philippian Church, the first congregation of Christians in Europe, in her home. And she's probably a single woman. We don't know anything about her being married. She's a businesswoman. She has means. So she is supporting the first church in Europe. See, Paul wasn't concerned about the feminization of the church. Mm -hmm. Um, And he wasn't concerned that the church have a masculine feel. Mm -hmm. And those are things that we're trying to push against and saying, look, Jesus Christ is our brother. And as Eric has said, he became like us in every way, like his brothers and sisters in every way. And he was tempted like his brothers and sisters in every way, yet without sin. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're trying to say. The discussion has to be reframed Mm -hmm. and it needs to be reframed in a fresh gospel centered way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, I think you guys have done a very good job with that in, in your book and doing that. And it's funny you mentioned the, the feminization of the church. It re- reminds me of several years ago. I'm, I'm a worship leader. And a couple of years back at this point, I was putting together an order of worship and it included a couple songs in it. And I remember the pastor at, at this church telling me that one of the songs, which is a fairly well-known hymn, was too feminine for the service <laughs> and he didn't want to do it anymore. And we had done it before previously once or twice. And I remember thinking, is it? I don't understand. How, how is it? And I I think I was too shocked at that point or stunned, maybe not shocked would be a little dramatic, but a little stunned and wasn't sure how to respond. But Mm -hmm. that has stuck with me because I don't know how that would even be defined because it wasn't all of the, all of the lyrics were, were solid and biblically rich. And, and I remember struggling with that and thinking, what does that even mean? And and so it's it's funny you mentioned that because one of the stories that was really was really powerful in in your other book and worthy was reading more about Lydia and mm. the particular role she played and I have known pieces of that but the way that you guys weaved all that together was was really neat and so it was it was nice to have that in my arsenal of examples of you know if the church is is a reflection of God and we are both made in his image then it should have a feminine feel in the same way that it would have a masculine feel for what that's worth that it should be there should be, you know, both sides of that as part of the church. And so it's like, so what if there is a slightly feminine feel in your perception, even because it's yeah. really culturally speaking at that point. Yeah. And it's, it's sometimes it's laughable to me because we have, you know, Christians on social media, you know, losing their minds, you know, over Disney's female characters are too masculine and then they're concerned about the feminization of the bride of Christ. Like, if the church is Christ's bride, like, should we masculinize her? Like, what, what is that? What does that even? What does that even mean? And if, and when you look back at the at the creation story, as God is creating His people, the very first problem was that His people were too masculine. Like, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a female, and mm-hmm. and so it's. The, the thought that there should be an overriding gendered feel to the church is is weird and i don't even know i don't know what it means other than pastors are like 
tearing phone books in half and bending iron bars around their neck or something. <laughs> um, and, and it's, it's, um, yeah, it just, it just feels, but I, I've, I've experienced the same thing. A friend and I wrote, uh, we write worship songs. And at one point his pastor told him, I love this song, but I can't sing the last verse because it talks about anticipating Jesus warm embrace. And he said, that's just, that's not, that's not masculine. It's too feminine to want to have Jesus embrace you. So I can't sing it. And I, I just thought, what, what, <laughs> like, what does it mean to become like a little child except for to want Jesus to hold you? And <laughs> it's, yeah. Anyway. The paradigm, <laughs> you know, the paradigm, actually the reality of what we're all going to be in eternity is a bride. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's the primary. Uh, I, I mean, even starting in the Old Testament with uh, Jehovah and his bride Israel and the family of faith, men and women being a, a bride throughout eternity, we've really got to move past these tropes and you know i'm just wondering just as you were talking about that song how that song had truth in it is there masculine truth and feminine truth i i don't understand how how we can say okay something is masculine a, a, a truth is masculine and a truth is feminine which is why we wanted to reframe it and say, all right, what we need are churches that have a Christic feel. Mm-hmm. They feel like Jesus, which means, what does that even mean? It means that uh, it, the vulnerable are protected. Uh, people who would have no rights are lifted up, that we are one I, I, each of us laying down our lives for the flourishing of the other. That's what it means to be Christic. And I'm just afraid that, you know, what we have in the fruit of the spirit, you know, gentleness, kindness, (laughs) um, peace, hope, those things are being defined as being feminine. Mm -hmm. When in fact, the fruit of the spirit is not gendered. And we've just really got to think about being people who shape um, our identities around the identity of a God man who did not think that equality with God, his position of power, his position of authority was something to be exploited, but instead gave it up. For the life of others, for the sake of others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things in the in the book that speaks a little bit to to what we were just talking about, and and I loved how you put this together was the the transformation of the the creation mandate that was given equally to both men and women, and how that has been transformed in Christ into the Great Commission, that it is given equally as our primary purpose in life. And that's not based on being a male or a female in the church. It is given to both and equally so with the the charge of go and do. And I think that is often lost in in some of these <laughs> second tier conversations, as you were saying earlier. And And one thing in particular that I think 
connects the dots a little bit in that space is um, some of the translations that we even use. And you guys pointed out this in your book, and we actually did an episode about translations um, a couple months ago at this point, but talking about how the way um, the scriptures translated can make a big impact in how you understand pieces of scripture. And I actually just switched over to the CSB version in the past year. I got a new Bible and it was for multiple reasons. I needed a new one and had really been hearing great things about that. And, and one of the reasons was exactly what you guys mentioned is that it's one that translates um, terms that should be translated as brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters and not just as brothers. And I think that, um, and I'm hoping that even through our, our podcast and these discussions in your book and those conversations, that that's something that can can get a little more visibility because I think it does impact the way you read it. And maybe, and I'm not sure um, how much it impacts men as much as it impacts women in the reading of it, of course. But I will say, even though I've been using that translation and know that many of these words should be translated that way, there was this section where you pulled all of those together, or at least a big handful of those. And as I was reading it, there was something about reading them back to back to back to back to back in, in a row that I actually even said to my husband, that that like stirred up something in me to actually see it translated that many times on the same couple of pages, because it felt, even though I know it's for me, it felt a little bit more like it was for me seeing it the way it should be translated. And so it's just something I really appreciated about your approach and, and calling out the impact of translations because other ones do the opposite and you can almost feel as if it's not for you when it is. So. Thank you for that. That, you know, I, I too have um, migrated over to the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. And one of the reasons that we did that is that that exact thing is how the word siblings. <laughs> uh, and of course, there's a range in uh, in translation. So, you know, obviously, some uh, some uh, verses should be translated just brothers. But um, generally speaking, that list of verses about brothers and sisters I don't know if if we can uh, explain how important it is, even for me. I mean, I've been a Christian for over 50 years, and every time I read a verse that said brothers or brethren, I knew, okay, that means me too. I mean, I knew that. I knew how to contextualize it. But to actually see sisters there. So in that verse, we've been talking about where uh, the Christian Standard Bible uh, translates the verse. He had to be made like his brothers and sisters. He was made like his brothers and sisters in every way. How important that is and how different it is from just reading. He had to be made like his brothers in every way. That's huge. And then also the translation, of course, and we may or may want not want to get into this, but the translation of uh, Genesis 3, where Eve's desire is for her husband, but it is translated contrary to her mm -hmm. husband, that sets up, because of the, the translation team chose to translate desire for as contrary to. That sets up the trope that I'm sure you've heard a hundred times, Carissa, that women are out to usurp authority. Mm -hmm. And so translation is so important. 
And, you know, what we want to do again, I don't, I don't want to choose a translation just because it happens to appeal to my sensibilities. Mm-hmm. But I do want to choose a translation that's as far as I understand the closest to the original text and is a more faithful translation that's not trying to drive a certain perspective. Mm -hmm. So if you can say brothers and sisters, then why not say it? Mm. If you can say desire for instead of contrary to, why not say it? I have ideas about why it's not said. (laughs) But I'm just thankful that now we have we can go to the Christian Standard Bible and it's helpful in that way. Yeah. And I, I would say, you know, it, as a man, it has been helpful to me to read that. And, mm-hmm. you know, the CSB, as they translated that, they were not uh, caving into culture or any, mm-hmm. you know, any feminist pressures or anything like that they were trying to create a faithful translation and what a translation ought to do is it ought to take uh, what's written in one language and put it into another language that of the intended readers and you know that that word in greek adelphoi literally means brothers and and so that's why it's been translated that way it's a different word than than sisters. And it and that's not wrong to use the word brother to represent all the siblings. Um, you know, in Genesis five it says that he created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and he called them Adam. He called them man. That the, the species human takes its name from the first one, uh, from the man. And that's why we often see the masculine language used to represent the whole. And that's what's going on in Paul's day as Paul's writing is, is he's using brothers to represent the whole because that's how siblings were commonly spoken of. Uh, You spoke of all the siblings using the word brothers. Well, we live in a time and a place right now where there was, there, there was for a while where like Elise said, you read it and you knew it, it represented you. But we're in a world where brothers is not understood to mean siblings. And that is the meaning that Paul intended to communicate when he wrote it. And so Tom Schreiner, who uh, was instrumental in, uh, you know, has chapters in Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. He has a defense and he was on the translation team for CSB and he has a, a good defense of why brothers and sisters is the best translation there. And, and so what happens to me as a man, when I read that is, yeah, I would have always said, yeah, brothers includes sisters. It's all the Christians there, but it's just a very distinct and stark reminder that this is not just speaking to me and people like me. This includes my sisters. And so what Elise did, I think there was just brilliant where she took all of those instances and like you mentioned, just listed them all in a row. And some of those things are things we're supposed to do as a church, not just like as individuals, but like with each other. And we have to ask the question, if I'm supposed to be doing this, living in this way with all my siblings, with my brothers and my sisters, then why does my life in the local church 
and the ministries that I participate in, why is it so gender segregated? You know, where is my opportunity to do these things with all of my siblings and not just my literal brothers in Christ? And I can't be more thankful. And then there's a lot more I could say about what what Elise said about Genesis 3. But mm-hmm. uh, I and, and we go into that, I think, in the book. But yeah, that phraseology, and if you read even the complementarian material and that phraseology, they admit, like, it means toward. Your desire will be toward your husband. And then you have to interpret, is that toward, meaning toward like I want to overtake or toward like I want to cooperate with. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's been done in the ESV is they, they decided their final text would not allow the reader to read the scripture and decide for themselves. They were going to codify it in their final edition of the ESV biblical text that it means contrary to. And that is a very unfortunate mistake because the the translation team there and the editorial board has decided that Christians aren't able to read it and make a decision. We have to tell them it means this one and not the other. And I don't think the footnotes to, to say what it, you know, what it literally is, it, it, you know, makes up for that. I think, I, and I think the CSB is, you know, we're not sponsored by them. We don't, <laughs> we don't get any money from this, but if they want to send us leather Bibles. They can, but it's, it, they've served us so well in what they've done. And uh, we're both very thankful for that. Well, and I, I guess it's proof that, you know, you're not sponsored by them because I'm the one who asked the question, I guess, to begin with. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Perhaps>. <laughs> But, you know, but it's, it's something that I think is, is really important. And I'm going to go back to, I think, in the, the introduction, I mentioned that I spoke on a panel about 18 months ago about women in the church. And one of the questions that I was asked was, what is one thing you would love for the men listening right now to know what it's like as a woman to read the Bible? And, and the, the answer I gave at that point was, sometimes I have to work really hard to find my part of the story. Hmm. Because it can be hard in the overshadowing of all of the, you know, the, the fathers of the faith and, and all of that to, to find yourself. And I pointed to, you know, in the story of the Exodus as they're coming out and they're being rescued, there's these two little verses where Miriam uh, leads the women in, in worship after they are, are redeemed and rescued. And I have held onto those so tightly because in the grand story of Moses and all the things that Moses did, there's this little thing over here on the side about Miriam and the importance that women played. And so it was an example I gave. And I think the more we can show women how they are absolutely part of the the redemptive historical narrative, the better and the better for our churches. And so I think, I think, you know, translations is a really big deal. One, I would not have even understood until maybe a year or two ago, um, just because I didn't really know that much of a difference between any of them. And so learning that I think has been really cool. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just liked that you guys call that out because yeah. I, I went back to my, my new CSB and I was like, thank you, CSB, <laughs> yes. for, for being, you know, very explicit in saying things the way that they, that they could yeah. be understood. So um, I just really appreciated that. So I have another question for you. And it could be a it could be a two parter, or you can pick which side of it. But I'd be curious in in the writing of this book, I would love to know either was there a big takeaway or aha moment of sorts for either one of you, and what would be one of the main takeaways you'd want someone to have? I'm thinking that they could possibly be the same thing, so I want to put them in the same place for you. But would love to know that for both of you. Yeah. So that that is a, that is a great question, and 
I love, you know, just backing up to what you just said about having trouble sometimes finding your place as a woman in the redemptive historical storyline of the Bible. You know, that's what, you know, for me, Worthy was uh, an opportunity to see, particularly in Genesis and then in the Gospels, as, as I was the primary one drafting those chapters, you know, to see how central and frequent and included women were in all those stories. And I think I sometimes thought that, well, the reason we don't hear much about women is because the storyline itself is actually dominated by males and it follows males and all this. But when you go and you're looking to see where the women show up, you realize the Bible is not a male-dominated story. There are women all over the place and they've always been there and they've always been key in the story. It's not that the it's not that we have to search to find it. I think it's the way it's been taught. We we have not been taught to see it. We've been taught it as a masculine as a male dominated story. Mm-hmm. And so we can't even see the women that are there because we they, they've been glossed over. And so writing Jesus and Gender, I drafted the chapter on the church. And so Lisa had written that chapter for Worthy. And so now I had a chance to go in and, and really look at the women being involved in the local church. And again, I was just floored by not only how frequently women show up in Acts and in the epistles, mm-hmm. and and they've always been there. I just haven't seen them. But it wasn't just how often they showed up, but it was how they were talked about. You know, Euodia and Syntyche, we read that passage and we think all about, you know, peacemaking and resolution because they were in conflict. But Paul's descriptor of them, about how they contended with him side by side for the gospel, it's to contend is to to fight and to wrestle for something. It's it's a battle to defend something. And he doesn't say, well, they came behind me and contended. You know, they worked behind the scenes to help me fight. You know, they they carried the water and made the lunch while I was contending for the gospel. And that was really important. No, he says they're right by my side fighting with me. Like he didn't say sit out the battle. He said, I need you in the battle with me. And and we could just multiply the ways that Paul makes these little comments about women that show he he didn't see them as, you know, Rachel Miller refers to, you know, women are often treated as throw pillows. They're nice, but they're not necessary. And Paul is there speaking of women as, no, you're absolutely necessary. You're not any different than these men. And, and you've been there to provide for me the women provide for him he sends the women on mission um he fights with them and again you see it and you go why haven't i ever seen this so starkly and then you then you have to just ask yourself like do i talk like that does my life look like that because if we're supposed to imitate Paul as he imitated Christ, then that's going to mean we imitate Paul's cooperation with women just the same way that Jesus had these women providing for him and itinerating with him. 
Mm-hmm. And that's that was an aha, and it was a huge challenge. Uh, thanks, Chris. I think that I think that the big takeaway for me really is that so much of what is talked about, as far as male and female, this whole discussion of male and female in the church, in the home, whatever, it's it's just been foisted upon the church and not really in scripture you know it's like where does the bible say any of this stuff you have to um take some part of scripture and then draw implications and then other implications of those implications and instead just to say all right what is my attitude supposed to be what is my attitude about my brothers in Christ supposed to be? It's supposed to be the same attitude of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And that, boy, that to me has, um, it, it has, has been working in my heart to sort of transforming the way I think about my brothers and sisters, that I'm not supposed to be trying to get preeminence there i'm not supposed to be trying to prove that somehow um i should be the one in charge but instead i'm i'm supposed to lay down my life for the life of others for their flourishing and that i need to do that with humility so you know i just i guess what it's done for me is I, I, I've come to the place where I just, I refuse to get drawn into the, the fight. I'm just not going to be drawn into the fight. I, all I want to do is just say, look, because of what Jesus has done, which he's forgiven me for all my sins, and he's counted me perfectly righteous. And he's told me, that I am going to be with him forever. And he's given me his spirit and he's placed the sign of the covenant on me as a woman, because he's done all those things that I don't have to fight anymore. Mm -hmm. And I can love my neighbor, whether my neighbor is male or female. And I I just think if, if we can move beyond the war and learn to lay down our lives, it would be a really good thing for the church and for the world. Because as long as I'm fighting with my brothers about who gets to be boss, we're not working together to go out into the world. And that's what we need to do. I love it. I love it. That's fantastic. All right. So before we we close out in just a minute, I have one fun, more quirky question for you. So you guys are you you wrote the book together, and it's your second time doing so. So simply from a, a craft standpoint, what's it like to try to write one consistent narrative together, um, going back and forth on drafts? Do you have any any particular ways you work together? Um, any quirks? I know everyone who does some sort of creative endeavor has different ways that they approach the creative space. So what is that like for both of you individually and together as you've worked on this? Um, I, I guess that for us, what we would say um, is when we drew out how the book was going to look, and of course, whenever you draw out how something's going to look before you actually do it, 
you understand that, <laughs> that it's not going to probably look like that. But we did sort of try to sketch out, okay, we need chapters on these things. And so who's going to take them? Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. And then we sent our chapters to each other and helped edit each other without without taking our own voice away. So I think that once you once you get into the book, you can pretty well know without us telling you who's writing what. I didn't want to change Eric's voice to be my voice, but we wanted to have a unified message. And um, yeah, so I, you know, that's how that's how it worked for us. Eric has a way of working that's different than than the way that I work, and that's fine because that's that's the whole message of what we're trying to say here is I don't have to try to write in a masculine way, whatever that would be. And Eric doesn't have to try to write in a feminine way, can't define that. Uh, we both have our own voices and they're good and it's what makes the book stronger, I think. It's been a joy to be able to write two books now with Elise and people have commented on us having a, what would, what would, what do people call it, Elise? A really good, uh, I'm not even sure what you could call it. Chemistry. That's what it is. <laughs> I, knew, I knew it was a class I failed in high school. <laughs> so, but we, we enjoy each other and, and, and the like, you know, we, we do have some fun quirks. I mean, writing worthy. One of our quirks was to sometimes accidentally delete whole chapters and scramble to go find them <laughs> out there in the cloud someplace. We never lost any, but, um, or, or like, uh, I think this time Elise was writing much faster than me. And so she's sending me chapters and I, I haven't written mine yet. And so I'm feeling like I need to catch up and it started the opposite way with worthy and, and so we just have different writing styles. And, and I, th- I think what Elise keyed in on there too, is we have very different voices in our writing. And one thing I really appreciate about both publishers that we've worked with is that they have not tried to smooth us out to make all the chapters sound like they're coming from the same voice, which I think could be tempting for a publisher to do. And, you know, I think if Elise and I had swapped chapters on this and taken the opposite chapters, it would be a very different book with the same message. We we would be saying the same things, but we'd be saying them very different. And I really appreciated that Elise read my chapters and I knew it's not how she would have written them. And she didn't say, these need to be changed to sound more like this or this or this. And the same with her. I I don't write in the same style as her. In fact, when I read her chapters, when we started Worthy and she sent me, I think, the introduction, I thought, oh, man, I can't write with this this, like this. This is going to be a failure. I'm not that I'm not a good writer like she is. That that was my thought. And um, and and she's had a lot more experience at this. But it and but she's been so gracious to just let me be me. And and I've just let her be her. And what what I why I think that's really relevant to this book, you know, it's not just trivial, it's that God has made us all different as men and women and as individuals, and we have different ways of doing things and we have different ways of putting things, speaking things, and the world and the church would be a worse place if we all thought and spoke and acted exactly the same. Um 
except for conformity to Christ. But, but even there, Jesus is conforming us all into the same image, but we're still individuals. And I, I just think that is a good picture of what it looks like to bring brothers and sisters together as we make decisions in the church, as we do ministry, as we lead worship, as whatever it is we do, there's going to be times to go, oh, no, 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 that as a man, that's not how I would sound. That's not what I would do. And instead of going, oh, we're concerned about the masculization or the feminization of Jesus and gender, we just said, and the publisher just said, these are the two people doing it. And it's going to sound like both of them. And I think that's what life in the church and the home and the world should actually be like. That That is just wonderful. And that's, that's a good picture. I, I love ending on that as far as the discussion of the book goes. So as a, as a closing question, then for anyone who may be listening, who wants to go out and get the book, it is out now. It, it came out just a couple days ago as we were recording this. Where can someone find the book? And if someone wants to learn a little bit more about each one of you, where can they go do so as well? So if you want to learn about the book, you can go to jesusandgender.com or christicmanhood.com or christicwomanhood.com. They'll all go to the same place. And you'll see links to where you can buy the book. You'll see endorsements from uh, all of our endorsers. And you'll see our podcast, Worthy, uh, Celebrating the Value of Women. And you'll see our bios there. And both have links to our individual websites where you can uh, check out more of what we do as individuals. Right. And I'm just at um, elisefitzpatrick.com. If you wanted to see mm, something more than that, I, um, I'm hardly ever there as far as keeping it up. I, I have no idea what's even on there. But we tweet. <laughs> but we do tweet. We <laughs> yes. tweet a lot. For better or for worse. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I, I've actually seen both of you tweeting. Um, yeah, Eric, you are actually quite active on Twitter a lot. <laughs> yes, sometimes um, I'm not, I'm not I sure get corrected is... for that on our podcast while we're recording. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, uh, Elise, if, if your level compares. I, I know I'm following you on there too, but I, I think every time I go on, I see something recent from Eric. So I know he's <laughs> on it all the time. But... Yeah. <laughs> well, good. Well, I, I encourage anyone who's listening. This has been this has been so much fun to talk with both of you. I would highly, highly recommend the book. So to anyone who's listening, I think it's definitely worth going to get. Would love to talk with any of you who are listening um, that know us personally about this conversation and the topics here. And Elise, Eric, thank you both so much for making the time to be with us and for being part of this discussion. It's it's so needed and you guys have such valuable voices in it. And I'm really grateful for both of you and for your time today. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, Carissa. It's been, it's been wonderful. Okay. Talk soon. Thanks guys.